Are UK private boarding schools and universities a possible route for politically exposed persons to channel unexplained wealth? I have with me for this podcast an associate fellow of the Chatham House Africa program and the author of the paper which we'll be discussing today, Mr. Matthew Page, as well as Step Up Nigeria's Executive Director, Onini. My name is Ferami Adeola and I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you both for joining me for this conversation today. Um, as an introduction to our conversation, tackling money laundering remains a critical challenge for anti-corruption fighters. Politically exposed persons, also known as PEPs, who launder money are continually searching for ways to channel their illegal wealth, either through establishing shell companies in safe havens or buying expensive properties in Dubai. But there's another area that has not received much scrutiny. The education system in developed countries as a possible money laundering route. Um, many West African PEPs are known to send their children to study in private schools and universities, mostly in developed countries like the UK and the US. And these schools are very, very expensive and most times above the official earnings of these PEPs. So in the UK, it is estimated that more than £30 million is spent by West African PEPs in the UK education system. I mean, that's a lot of money. Could this be a possible money laundering route for PEPs? And if so, what anti-corruption measures should be used to check or prevent West African PEPs from channeling unexplained wealth into the UK education sector? So to begin this, um, I'll invite both Matthew and Oni to start our conversation. I'll start with Matthew, please. Um, thank you again for your paper. Like we've just said before we started recording, it's such an interesting paper, so much um, to get out of there. So can you just tell us a bit about the rationale behind writing this paper um, on the UK education system? And, you know, what was your motivation for this and what do you hope to get out of the paper? Thank you very, thank you very much for, for having me. It's, it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, the motivation was really, um, like much of my research, reading about this issue in the Nigerian press, right? Seeing uh, in politicians' Twitter feeds or on, um, you know, uh, in, in the gossip columns of newspapers that their children were graduating from these posh universities. And, and seeing this is obviously a trend. And, and seeing the commentary among civil society and anti-corruption activists uh, like ourselves about how this behavior seems quite suspicious and potentially problematic um, as, a, as a way in which Nigerian political elites are spending their unexplained wealth. So rather than sort of talk about it in an anecdotal way, I thought it was really important to actually research this in depth. And fortunately, the UK government was also seeing, you know, the UK High Commission in Nigeria and the UK government was also seeing this as a potential um, conduit for illicit financial flows from West Africa to the UK. And so they wanted to learn more about it. So it was a nice situation where, you know, a research question that I had was was really beginning to um, percolate and and bubble up onto the policymakers' radar as well. And so so that was my main motivation to to really take this question beyond the anecdotal, oh, we all know this is happening, isn't it terrible? To, you know, what's really going on here? Why is it going on? What's the scope and scale of the activity? Um, and that's where we get that 30 million pounds a year number, which again I think is very sort of conservative. I mean, I think, you know, really that's a that's a lowball estimate. Uh, and um, 
and um, and really detail it in the paper and provide policy recommendations that will enable UK and Nigerian and, and other national decision makers and, and schools and universities themselves to, to potentially diminish the illicit right and, and corruption prone transactions, limit those and, and, and deter those while not, and this is really important, while not making it more difficult for everyday Nigerians to pursue their education abroad if they would like, or, you know, basically not tar everyone with the same brush is what, what I wanted to avoid uh, from a policy standpoint in terms of addressing this issue. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Matthew. Um, so, Oni, I would like to know um, what you would say are some of the implications for West African countries like Nigeria if PEPs in these countries continue to possibly use this unexplained wealth to send their children to UK institutions um, without any stronger anti-corruption measures put in place to hinder them. Thank you, Farami, and thank you again, Matthew, for this excellent paper and this um, for highlighting this very important issue. Um, I think one of the implications for West, Afri West African countries would be the fact that it will incentivize corruption. I keep on talking about um, one aspect of anti-corruption that I'm personally passionate about beyond anti-corruption education. It's around the need to close those um, money laundering routes because you always have to think about, you know, if if the space exists to keep on, you know, hiding this wealth, then of course people will be more incentivized to, you know, accumulate as, you know, even monies that they don't even need in three generations to come. So it's safe heavens like the, you know, where, where the shell companies are being, you know, um, exist as well as um, golden visas now and then, you know, this sort of um, international education, you know, systems as well, which allows them to spend this money easily, makes it now, you know, attractive to engage in corruption. So I think the implication is that in a nutshell is I think it will incentivize corruption because there's an ability to spend this money easily. Um, and um, you would see in Matthew's report later when we, if you have, if you've read, I don't know if you've read Matthew's report, but somewhere along the line, they talk about shell companies being used. He talks about shell companies being used to pay school fees, <laughs> um, you know, in, in the, in the UK as well. So, and so it, it's, it's worrying. So I think that, which is why I think it's very important that Matthew's paper is actually timely. And I think it's something worth promoting and really discussing because this is not something that we would, like Matthew said, I mean, people, the average Nigerian, for example, can just talk about, ah, it's not those people that send their money, you know, their kids abroad, but they don't really, nobody's really saying, okay, so what can we do about it? Or, you know, why does that happen? Why does it happen easily? You know, what, what impact does it have even on middle-class Nigerians, you know, or West Africans who just have genuine, you know, they have like, they've suffered, worked hard, saved, and really want to go, you know, abroad to study. What, how does this, what does this mean for inequality? People, the same people who steal, you know, the the, the resources are sending their kids abroad um, to get the best, into one of the best, you know, they go to the best boarding schools. Of course, when you go to the best private schools in the UK, we all know what it means. It means like, you're likely to get to the best universities as well, and they're likely to get the best jobs. And then, you know, and then, wow, and the same money that is being used as well, to 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 fuel this corruption is undermining the education um you know systems in Nigeria well you know it keeps on going down and down and down and and so I think the implication is that the more we have this route the more there'll be less care as well about 
developing our education system because particularly in respect of the PEPs who, you know, are, some of them are policymakers or, you know, public officials who have the responsibility to provide these services. So in a nutshell, incentivize corruption as well as um, it could, you know, lead to a deterioration of our, it could, you know, make our education system in in Nigeria and other West African countries also like um, deteriorate because there'll be less interest to um, develop that sector since they're sending their kids abroad. Yeah, I think that those are the key points. I'll stop here. Okay, thank you, Wayne. Um, Matthew also would like to know what implications you think there are for West African countries if um, this issue continues to persist. Yeah, I think the the sort of so what or the implications question is, is really important as Onyi um, highlighted. I mean, I think the under the, the huge underinvestment in um, the, the the domestic education sectors, the fact that you know there are you know um, uh, right, it's so difficult for for an everyday Nigerian right to navigate the expense and process of even getting a visa to travel to the UK or US. Yet these elites, sort of who who have very deep pockets, can can do it with ease. Um, you know, this double standard, if you will, right, where you know you have have senior senior policymakers in Nigeria who who for the most part, you know, again, escape to spend time in Dubai, you know, rather than spend their their time right when they're not in the Senate or, you know, in the villa, <clears throat> you know, they're they're abroad enjoying a, a different standard of life than than everyday Nigerians. And the same is true with education. <clears throat> the other issue is much more sociological. And I talk about this in the paper. And I think you know, people who maybe aren't, you know, as as deep in the grass of anti-corruption issues as, as we are, you know, will find this part interesting, which is, you know, why do Nigerian elites and West African elites, because again, the paper talks about Ghana as a case study as well, because um, many Ghanaian elites send their children abroad, not just to the UK, but also to Canada and the US. You know, what are sort of the motivations for doing this? You know, and they're very complicated. And this is, you know, perhaps a discussion for a whole separate podcast, right, about elite formation in Nigeria and identity and sort of this um, internal racism, right, that that some elites um, demonstrate in terms of, you know, how, you know, they want their children to go to white, you know, elite white institutions in the UK. And we see that, you know, there's um, a fantastic sociologist, uh, British Nigerian sociologist, um, Per Ailing, who's done some incredible research on this aspect of the topic. And she talks a lot about, um, you know, again, Nigerian middle class and, you know, and, and upper class perceptions of the desirability of sending their children abroad to, to pick up the sort of mannerisms and, and accent and education of a, of a white British um, you know, young person. Um, and to and to in a sense join that that international elite. So so my point is, and this goes for the implications, you know, part of your question is, you know, this is as much about money laundering, right? Taking ill-gotten gains that one has stolen from public funds, directly or indirectly, and you using it to buy something, right? It's not a luxury car, it's not a luxury flat, 
it's something less tangible, right? A very expensive education. So you can't point to it on a on the drive outside a house or you know at a posh address and say, there's the evidence of your ill-gotten gains, right? It's much more ephemeral. It's in the brain and, and soul of the of the child or children of of um, you know political elites who who obtain that that education, but it's nonetheless a you know a product of money laundering, a a use of the proceeds of crime to buy something that is of value. Um, but it's also so it's all, it, it's not just about money laundering; it's also about reputation laundering and about identity laundering, right? And and you know an incredibly corrupt politician or official who, you know, in a way has sort of, um, you know, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps in the sense that they've, you know, not come from money, they've not come from an elite status, you know, they've used their wealth and ill-gotten gains to propel their political career forward and, and rise to the very top of government. And now they're looking to, in a sense, remake and um, recondition their whole family, right? And take take their children, put them in elite institutions, give them opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have, um, and uh, and thereby sort of take this very opportunistic, you know, criminal, you know, wealth acquisition that they've, they've undertaken, and in a sense, make its effects much more permanent than one single generation, right? One car, one house, one you know, trip to Dubai. It's it's about remaking an entire family name and and recasting that as as an elite as an elite family. So that's what's I think an interesting implication is it's almost perpetuating or or it's like making a corruption very permanent in ways in which buying a posh car and buying a posh house are not um, not necessarily as permanent. Just wanted to add something because I think it's an important point that. Um matters made around the societal pressures, because I think that's what's linked to this, is this even to some extent, if I'm allowed to use the, say, social norms, because there's just this thing, expectation when you get to a particular level in society, that when your kids, you know, are ready to particularly at the university stage, oh, are you sending them abroad, or which, you know, there's no, people don't think that if you've achieved a certain status in society, you just expect that your kids will study abroad. Nobody even thinks, you know what I mean, or worst case, study in private universities in Nigeria. So yeah, just to um, agree with what Matthew said, I think it's worth also thinking about that. So next, I'd like to ask Matthew again. Um, so now what anti-corruption measures do you think should be put in place to prevent the UK education system and other education systems that are sort of attractive to West African peps from being used to channel unexplained wealth? Yeah, and this is and this is a really important question because I think that it's very easy on this particular issue or any of these issues where we talk talk about specific types of corrupt activity, right? Where right in previous reports I've talked about security vote or in previous reports, right, I've talked about Nigerian elites buying property in Dubai. And I think it's very easy to get in the habit of saying, oh look, here's another corrupt thing Nigerians or Nigerian elites are doing. And, and I think that's really a wrong, a wrong-headed perception or interpretation of, of this type of research, right? Because as, as many Nigerians know and are increasingly pointing out to their you know, Western counterparts, you know, the international financial system and Western institutions, including 
the UK educational sector or, you know, or uh, educational institutions in other countries, um, either sort of somewhat deliberately or inadvertently facilitate or um, or drive this these types of corrupt behaviors and these illicit financial flows. And so that's not to write, you know, absolve Nigerian political elites of any responsibility and, you know, and claim that they're, you know, victims and, the, you know, they're definitely masterminding this activity, but they're doing it with a lot of willing facilitators. They're doing it, you know, in response to incentives or a large degree of impunity in terms of their ability to to move funds without questions, to be granted visas, you know, without a second, um, you know, without a second look. And so, you know, this paper really, when it comes to talking about the safeguards, right, and the and the policy measures that could be taken, this really does, this, this paper really does focus on the, you know, the destination of these funds, right? The educational institutions, the UK itself, because, you know, we all understand, right, the sort of the huge problem, the problems that exist around, you know, corruption in Nigeria and preventing it and deterring it and closing loopholes, right? That's a whole, you know, massive problem set that that I, you know, that I often research and we often talk about and that the type of work that Step Up Nigeria is doing is trying to prevent it like a grassroots, very sort of social youth, you know, um, you know, changing behaviors and norms, right? So, so there's a whole, there are many different parts of that. What this is really about is the, is the conduits, right? The outflows, how is this money leaving Nigeria and what is it being spent on? So from the standpoint of prevention and safeguards, I talk a lot about those in the paper, because to be honest, many of them are already there and just not being used. So things like suspicious activity reports, right? Which banks, and other financial institutions are responsible for filing, for notifying law enforcement in the UK and Nigeria when they think a transaction is suspicious. You know, those are incredibly underused. Um, so out of the over um, 480,000 suspicious activity reports, Submitted to the UK National Crime Agency in the in sort of the the year 2018 to 2019, only 24 were submitted by UK institu- educational institutions. 24 out of 480,000. So what that tells you is that despite their assertions that they follow all the rules and that they you know behave impeccably, UK educational institutions are not flagging as a matter of course transactions that are suspicious and that statistic that i just mentioned is extremely shocking given given another revelation that came out this week in an article front page article in the times newspaper which talked about how since 2015 49 british universities allow their students to pay 52 million pounds 52 million pounds in their tuition fees and and other expenses using cash, okay? Now, when we stop and think about that, right? Um, paying anything in cash, any major purchase in cash, right? If I go buy a house in cash, if I go buy, try to buy a car in cash, right? The, the, 
the people selling me those items are going to look at me and say, you know, sorry, we, you know, we don't take cash, you know, and I'm talking about in a Western, you know, context, um, you know, that's not like a private party sale. You know, if I'm in a and I'm buying a car from someone, you know, you know, uh, and it's a, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not an expensive one. I might, might pay cash for it, but I'm talking about, you know, major purchases, right. Tens of thousands of pounds. And so, um, the fact is, is that again, you know, when the times, you know, put Freedom of Information Act requests into these universities. It was it was clear that um, after Chinese and Chinese and Indian students, Nigerian students topped the list of of the types of students you know paying cash to UK universities. And so again, there's no reason why you know international students can't can't pay through a bank transfer. Um, and so clearly, my my point is is that universities in this case and independent schools, private boarding schools as well, are are turning a blind eye to behaviors that should be obvious red flags. And it's not, as you can see, it's not just Nigeria. You know, we're not picking on Nigerians or Nigerian students. This is a global problem, both in terms of where dirty money is coming from, you know, Russia, former Soviet states, West Africa, you know, um, India, Pakistan, etc. But also its destinations, UK, Canada, Ireland, Australia, US. So it's a global problem. I, being in Nigeria, you know, someone who's focused on Nigeria um, all day, every day, I looked at it from a Nigerian vantage point. But that's not to say that it's a, it's a strictly Nigerian problem. Thank you very much for that, Matthew. Um... There's a lot you said that honestly needs a lot of um, thinking through again, especially um, from the UK government point of view. Um, but only before we continue, you, you can also share your thoughts um, on maybe what anti-corruption measures you also think can be put in place. One of the things when I was reading the paper, your paper this morning, I was reflecting on was because you um, the paper actually lists very you know, good anti-corruption measures, safeguards, if implemented, I think that would make it very difficult. That would really go a long way in solving this issue we're discussing here today. Um, and I will pick up on two things. One of them was, um, I feel like, first of all, to tackle this, as Matthew said, we really need the schools, like in the UK, and we then we need from the immigration as well. I think so beyond working with the like agencies, like National Crime Crime Agency, for example, for, it, for this to fully work. Um, um, you mentioned, I think Matthew had mentioned, know your customer, you know, as well, you know, um, enforcing that. I think from reading your report, you, you said some schools said they actually still do a bit of that. Um, but I think they haven't gone a long way in terms of checking the source of funding. Um, I'm not sure if they really do that from what I read in the report. But what I wanted to mention was more around the visa checks. I've always been even beyond um, this particular issue we're discussing. Generally, I've, I've always been a strong campaigner for, for visa bans visa bans for PEPs and their families. I've had interviews on this. I've, this is my view, not just on the PEPs, but and their family. I know this may come as, it's like, why should the children suffer for sins of their fathers or whatever? But I always felt that then maybe people will reflect a little bit on their, on, 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 on their behavior, you know, when they think of the implication on their children. Because I will tell you this, the, the generation... Um, the we like call it the current peps using Nigeria as an example may not necessarily be so crazy about going abroad to be honest. Um, I would use people my parents' age. You know, they are not necessarily like it's not a draw or die affair of going abroad, but 
they're very particular about, you know, their kids' <laughs> education, just like we spoke earlier. It's, it's like a big thing, you know, for their kids to have the best and, you know what I mean, to, and it's like even a pride thing, there's something they boast among their peers and, oh yeah, he's in Oxford studying. So, so for them, that is a key thing. And so if we use the visa, <laughs> as a way to really curtail some of these activities. Um, so I wouldn't really go extreme in this case to say visa ban, but I wanted to bring it in because that has always been my, to solve all the just visa bans for peps and their families. But in terms of if I want to be realistic, what really happened, I would say more like, rather than focusing the current visa process, and Matthew mentioned this in the paper as well, you have to show enough money in your account that you can sustain yourself for the three, four years you're going to be there. So who, let's be real, how many people can really show this is it's those it's mostly the peps and maybe a few middle class nigerians who have who have very good jobs and have managed to save so that makes it very easy there is nothing in the visa process that actually checks for proof of funding and then maybe it would also help to to reduce you know the ease at which the peps is not going to stop it because people always find ways and there's so much visa officers can do right at the end of the day they also you know we know there will be some loopholes, but at least it will really help to check if they insist that, you know, their um, people show the proof of funds, like what's the source of not just showing your bank statement. You know, that's what I've been asked to do at the moment. I'm not just being asked to show, I'm, I have to show the proof of how that money, the account being used to set up a business. And I think this, the same thing should also go for, um, the, you know, the, the going abroad to study, you should be able to show where the funding is coming from. Um, and then I think, I'm not sure if this already happens, but I want to assume that the this immigration officers already have access to some kind of PEPS database. I don't know. Do they do do they, you know, and because I think what I suspect that they have is they just have database of maybe convicted PEPs. But I'm not too sure they generally even have some kind of PEP database. I know some organizations in Nigeria some some years back who were trying to build a PEP database that people could pay for and then assess. So like, you know, you run it through and then you could see, okay, if someone's name, you know, comes up as a PEP. You know, someone's someone is you know um, someone's surname matches a pep surname, then you could do for that. You know, do you know verify if that person is linked to that particular person, and then ask for more information rather than I think that would also solve the problem, Matthew, which you mentioned earlier about not having a process or a system where regular Nigerians also have to to to, to suffer the same process. You know what I mean? Like where it becomes also a tedious process for like people who are in PEPs, you know, going through that same. So if there's a way, so I'm, I'm thinking this is just, I don't know what is already, you know, I don't, I haven't really spoken to anybody in the immigration office as, as to what, you know, whether they have some kind of PEP database, but I don't know whether you know, Matthew, if that does that. Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, so I think there does need to be more link up. I don't think the databases are, are speaking to each other. I think mm -hmm. the immigration decisions, right, are made on very much procedural grounds and or they're flagged for for other reasons you know they they don't you know it's a it's a box ticking exercise we know that for the us and uk again nigeria you know the the visa operations in nigeria are amongst their largest and busiest in the world you know nigeria is on track to being the third largest country in the world by 2050 yet it still only has mm -hmm. right a, a consulate in lagos and an embassy in abuja for many countries um, you know, so, and you know, there are a high, high, uh, rate of overstays. So from a, from a visa fraud standpoint, right, it's always a high risk thing. And that's not to say that 
you know, again, it's just a situation, right, of a few bad eggs spoil the spoil the bunch and make them, as, as any Nigerian knows who's gone through the process, it's a very difficult and arduous and expensive and time-consuming process. And it's, um, you know, it's evolved to become that way for a variety of reasons. So to rewind to what you're saying earlier, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I think that, you know, policymakers in the U.S. and U.K. will talk about visa bans as if they're a tool that they ever use and they, <laughs> and they rarely, if ever do. Yeah. And so, I mean, again, I, I like the fact that they're thinking about them, but they need to, it, it needs to not be something that they put on a pedestal and they sort of break glass in the case of some sort of emergency. It needs to be a much more routine tool. And I think again, when it comes to accountability for one's behavior, especially again, remember these aren't victimless crimes. I mean, the three of us on this know, but I mean, you know, these politicians who are embezzling public funds, right, are creating a situation where Nigeria is one of the poorest, you know, most dangerous countries in the world with the lowest life expectancy, you know, incredibly low literacy rates, incredibly high child mortality rates. You know, these are not, you know, these elites behaviors are not victimless crimes. Um, and so, you know, there has to be some accountability. And if that accountability is not being able to send your child to a, a posh private boarding school, you know, I, I think I'm okay with that. And I know you are as well. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Matthew. So apart from the visa, um, strengthening the visa checks, so another area I think worth exploring is um, should we have some kind of um, anti-corruption league table for UK schools. I mean, if is it something that's going to bring some kind of pride, like saying, you know, just have, you know how we have league tables, everybody get excited about league tables, and then you could just have some kind of league table that where maybe even NCA themselves, if they have the time, publishes it and says, oh, um, maybe like the Dulwich College you mentioned in your report is number one this year for strong AML measures and, you know, following, you know, the some of the measures that have been put in place with that, because people also like, to have that kind of reputation of, you know, being that kind of school that, you know, with values and at the end of it, I would expect anyway. So I wonder if that could help in terms of the schools, maybe incentive, you know, incentivize them to kind of take it a bit more seriously. And also, and I, and I can tell you, I doubt if the NCA does any kind of extensive anti-corruption education in, you know, amongst the, you know, the, the owners, you know, the school owners or, you know, heads of schools or whatever in the UK to really sensitize them. I mean, they all know corruption is bad, but I always say it depends on how you, you know, anti-corruption education is, is how you relay the message, right, that you get people to act if you do not have good anti-corruption messaging that is a little bit positive and, and shows the cost and benefits and people understand why the role they have to play, like why their role is very critical. Then I think you may just get people thinking, oh, this is, you know, I'm not an anti-corruption specialist. Let the NCA handle this. I can't be checking spirit, you know, school, you know, who is corrupt coming to my school or whatever. Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, I think, you know, you could envision it right being based on a few criteria, right? It's like anything you'd have to come up. It's like Transparency International's yeah. Corruption Perception Index, a contentious rating system, as we know. But there is a methodology to all of these things. Yeah. You know, in the case of universities, you know, one, again, you'd need, you know, some sort of civil society organization to say, this is really cool. You know, let's set up a small research team to do this because it, it wouldn't be difficult. It would just be labor intensive. So, yeah, it would be infinitely possible. I think it would be really cool and really useful. Um, the only thing with these indexes, right, and we sort of suffer from this a little bit, is you get index fatigue to some degree in the sense that every year you publish... You know, you get the press release and the press write it up and they say, oh, this is the 
the thing. And then what it kind of does is it just kind of antagonize, you know, the, 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 in this case, the universities, in the case of corruption perceptions, rights, the, the Nigerian government sort of huffs and puffs and gets grumpy and it doesn't provoke <laughs> any changes in behavior. Yeah. Now that's not to say that it shouldn't be right. It's so in other words, like it's necessary probably, but not sufficient to change behavior, but it shouldn't all be about critiquing Nigeria, Nigerians, right? This is just about understanding how this problem affects Nigeria, which is what I care about most. It's what you care about most. It's what many of the people listening to the podcast care about most, but it's a part of a much bigger, bigger problem. So yeah, we beat up on Nigeria a lot, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's not, you know, again, we tend to lose sight of the fact that many of these issues we discuss in a Nigerian context are not unique. You know, Nigerians are not born more corrupt than than British people or Pakistani people or, you know, Ecuadorian people. They're, you know, human beings are born human beings. It's just about context and and behaviors and systems and structures and understanding them is the way in which we sort of change them for, for the better. Yeah, totally agree. What do you think about um, the unexplained wealth orders? Um, because um, I know that it's a threshold of fifty thousand um, pounds, which is why I'm not sure if it, you know, in terms of they have they have to go um, for 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 them to initiate an unexplained wealth order. It has to be for things above fifty thousand pounds. So I don't know if that could work in schools. Yeah, I mean it could do. I think there are a few problems. One is, you know, the the unexplained wealth order process from a legal and procedural perspective. My understanding is it's still in its infancy, its early days. You know, they've had one high-profile unexplained wealth order filed, and that was, you know, defeated. You know, that was upended in a in a court battle in a in a fairly questionable legal decision in my my opinion um this was against uh, a uh, azerbaijani pep i recall and azeri pep and so you know so it, so far it's, the process is off to a very rough start um where we're dealing with relatively small amounts of money across a huge number of people, right, to add up to a significant amount, but individually, right, it's 10,000 pounds here, 20,000 pounds here. Um, and you're talking about individuals, that means individual case, individual process, and so forth. Um, there's kind of a threshold, you know, and we know that anti-corruption law enforcement is, in both Nigeria and in the US and UK, is still fairly under-resourced in terms of the scale and scope of the problem. They tend to focus their energies, needless to say, on you know what we would call the big fish or the low-hanging fruit, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, but basically, right, the targets where you know there's significant amounts of funds, tens of hundreds of millions of pounds. You know the Dezani uh, sort of in you know incidents, or or individuals where it's just you know the, the legal or procedural case is a slam dunk and very straightforward. Um, and they, you know, when you talk about lower down the, the money and funding scale and the more difficulty in proving a predicate crime, right? So a predicate crime being 
how you got your ill-gotten gains in Nigeria in the first place, right? Which is very, very difficult to prove if you're sitting in the UK or the US and so forth. It's a long, it's doable, but it's quite quite the process and, and requires a lot of cooperation from you, you know, the EFCC and what have you. Um, so yeah, so so basically to answer that was a long answer to a very concise and clever and short question. The answer is, you know, unexplained wealth orders, you know, hopefully in our lifetimes, you know, will be something that is is a fact of life and used more effectively, but it's still such early days yet. And as and then that's why you and I keep coming back to the issue of visa sanctions because visa sanctions are are there, you know, they're so discretionary, you know, they again, you know, people are refused visas, you know, <laughs> you know, out of however many Nigerian applicants a day, right? Tons of people are refused um visas for for much less serious reasons. So it's it's something that's happening routinely in other contexts. Why not? Why not apply it to an anti-corruption context? Uh, it's not. Again, it's it's going to be. It's necessary, but not sufficient for having a coherent, functioning anti-corruption policy. And again, I've said I said this earlier in the podcast, but the real failure on the part of U.S., U.K., European, other countries policymakers is that they've been so reluctant to just routinize to make this sort of a standard tool in their toolbox. Um, so much in the last 15 minutes. Um, thank you both so much. Um, I'd like to just round up by asking, you know, if there's one thing you want people to take away from reading your paper, Matthew, just, you know, one tidbit, what's the call to action? Like, once they're done, what's the one thing, one key message you'd like to take away from your paper? <laughs> wow, that's a tough, that's a tough one. I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier on the podcast, right? Which is what's as important as the the takeaway, right? That this is a problem, that Nigerian peps spending money at UK universities could be a financial, you know, we think it's a illicit financial flow, you know, in some respects. Again, peps, politically exposed persons, not, not you know, you or Onyi or, you know, many of our, many of our listeners. These are not the type of people who, you know, uh, need to be pulled up in this net. But but that's really key, is I think that, you know, it's very easy to look at this report. And I think some of the criticism that I've heard from from some corners about this report is, again, saying, oh, this is trying to, you know, paint Nigerians as corrupt and un- not worthy of, you know, attending UK universities. And, and that's that's definitely not not the case. You know, the educational links between the UK and Nigeria and the UK and the US and Nigeria are are deep and old and durable and important and you know um and have really important cultural positive cultural impacts. Um so this isn't meant to try to undermine that. It's actually about strengthening it, right? And making it more sustainable over the long term, right? um and and preventing it from from becoming um something where again the problem gets out of control and then and then countries like we saw with Trump's visa ban against Nigeria right countries can sometimes take very draconian uh measures in response to problems so it's best to prevent an issue from becoming a problem and a crisis early on 
than it is to to ignore it until it becomes um, a, a major issue that countries crack down on. So that's my key takeaway, I guess, is that you know don't don't think of this paper as a you know as a critique of Nigerians attending UK universities. It's really about understanding the nuance of of what's a very um, long-standing connection between between Nigeria and the UK. Thank you very much. Um, Oni, likewise, what's one key message you think readers of this paper should take away once they're done? When I read the paper, right, one of the things that I was really ref- reflecting on, and which I think I mentioned earlier in discussions, was around the various money laundering you know, routes that you know, we really need to close to you know, make it difficult for corruption to occur. So money laundering routes such as the golden visas, you know, now with Matt's paper on um, unexplained world for expensive international education by West African peps, and then short companies, they're all intertwined. That's what I reflect, you know, my, my key reflection from this. And they all provide safe heavens to spend ill-gotten wealth. And we need like a comprehensive approach that can tackle all these routes simultaneously. Um, you know, one 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 solution cannot solve all the, you know, we do, we, we're not going to have a, it's not just one thing, like visa ban alone, like you uh, Matt mentioned, will not solve this problem. But there's a, I think, a holistic strategy that looks at all these international routes to money laundering. It's, it's really much needed to have it integrated, particularly now that we are, I'm reading for the first time in, for Matt's paper that, you know, shell companies are being used to pay school fees in the UK and other places. So I think it's worth, you know, I think this calls for a deeper reflection um, on how to close the corruption, international corruption routes. So that's my key reflection. Thank you very much, Lee. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you both for a really interesting discussion. I also think um, a lot more needs to be done focusing on asset recovery, so asset declaration um, in Nigeria. Um, I think it's important that they enforce more public officials declaring how much they have, um, what building and so this also helps universities and even the countries better gauge if these persons are able to um, fund the educations that they are sending their children for. So thank you both for a very interesting discussion. It's been really insightful and giving so much food for thought. And I know that our listeners have enjoyed this for sure. Uh, so for our listeners, you can read Matthew Page's paper called West African Elites Spending on UK Schools and Universities a closer look on the Carnegie Endowment for Internal Peace website. You can just Google that and it'll come up, I'm sure. Thank you both for your time. This was a really good podcast. Um, and this brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you.